KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. A new initiative in San Diego aims to close the funding gap for affordable housing projects. So we're, uh, I think, trying to achieve multiple aims here to have a more functional, more healthy housing economy in San Diego. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A proposal from Governor Gavin Newsom would create a new court system for people with severe mental illness. These are hard problems, but ultimately they come down to housing, housing, housing. Seaport Village in downtown San Diego could be getting a massive and towering makeover. And the San Diego Arab Film Festival kicks off this week. Hear about the highlights coming up on KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria yesterday launched a program that aims to speed up the construction of affordable housing. The Bridge to Home initiative combines local, state, and federal dollars to finance seven affordable housing developments across the city. Joining me to discuss the program and to catch up on some other things he's been up to is San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. Mr. Mayor, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Andrew. So this Bridge to Home initiative is using funds that the city had access to before. So what exactly is the new policy choice that the city is making here? We are trying to be as responsive as possible to the rising rents and increasing homelessness in our community. And so taking uh, some of our former redevelopment agency funds, marrying it with some state funding, specifically Senate Bill 2 proceeds, and then matching that with other uh, revenues that we have, we are trying to get the most bang for our buck that we can. And I think in our first round of Bridge to Home, 662 units at seven locations across the city, uh, I think really shows uh, that we're able to leverage these dollars to maximum benefit. And the good news, Andrew, is that we're not done. This is just round one. We anticipate additional rounds uh, to hopefully yield similar amounts of housing, uh, homes that are available and affordable to more San Diegans. Now, competition for these public subsidies for affordable housing is always very intense. And there were some developers who applied but didn't get access to this funding. What made these seven projects that are part of this initial round win out? I think a couple of things. First off, when you look at the communities where they're located, San Ysidro, downtown, East Village, and other parts of our city, what you see is a nexus uh, with access to high-quality public transit and other non-vehicle modes of transportation, as well as proximity to jobs. Also, a balanced community. We have a project that we're funding in the community of Rancho Bernardo, uh, which many folks often assume has no affordable housing. Well, this will actually help create some housing in that community that would be affordable to low and middle-income San Diegans. I think that's a good thing. So it's that proximity to jobs and existing infrastructure coupled with distribution around the city that I think was most attractive uh, when we were selecting uh, from those who uh, asked to participate in Bridge to Home. The city is also setting aside a quarter of the program's funding for smaller and emerging developers with projects of 40 homes or fewer. What's the goal with that? 
I think what we like about that kind of product is that it tends to be a little more naturally affordable. You know, these tend to be on smaller properties with, as you mentioned, uh, fewer units. And I think is interested in trying to grow the field here. You know, there are a lot of extremely creative, uh, very innovative, smaller local builders that we want to encourage. You know, we need more folks in this space working because the more homes that we create, the more capacity, the more units that we have, it will help drive down the price. We want to have a healthy housing economy here in San Diego. And that involves having more folks that are capable of building these homes that San Diegans need to live in, as well as more overall inventory. Uh, So we're, uh, I think, trying to achieve multiple aims here to have a more functional or healthy housing economy in San Diego. Of course, you can't talk about housing without infrastructure. And the city council today is hearing a report that found the city's infrastructure is more underfunded than ever before. San Diego would need an extra $4.3 billion over the next five years to fully fund its infrastructure needs. What does a mayor do with a problem of that magnitude? Just keep moving forward. I mean, it is uh, enormous. To put it in some context for uh, your viewers and listeners, this is more than we spend in a year uh, on our entire budget uh, at the city. So it is enormous. That said, though, Andrew, some of this is driven by current circumstances, inflation that average San Diegans are dealing with, the city has to deal with as well. We also have the challenge of uh, the great res- resignation and the fact that uh, workers are hard to find. That drives up cost too. Um, so there are some peculiarities with our current situation, this snapshot in time the council's looking at. Uh, but there are also some of our long-term challenges, which is that a lot of our city's infrastructure was built in the middle of the last century, and a lot of it is coming to the end of its useful life. Uh, so it's not a matter of a pothole here or a street resurfacing there, but it's a pump station that was built decades and decades ago that really can't continue to function. We need to replace it. Um, It's those big ticket costs that are basically coming due now that we have to find a way to fund. Good news in all this, Andrew, is that we are making internal uh, changes to try and be more efficient and effective with the existing dollars that we are given to maintain our infrastructure. And we also have the opportunity to compete for some of the dollars that are in President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, that will help us to address this crisis. Uh, It won't be a cure-all. We will still have a significant gap between the resources that we have and the needs that we have, uh, but we will be able to deal with it a bit more efficiently, effectively with those federal dollars and with those internal streamlinings that we're working on now. I want to ask you about traffic safety. 2021 was a very deadly year on San Diego streets. There were 72 traffic deaths, and that's more than any year since the city adopted its Vision Zero goal of ending all traffic deaths. So the city clearly hasn't been acting with enough urgency on this issue of traffic safety. What are you doing to prevent more deaths from happening? We're trying to do a lot, but we could, of course, do more. Last year's budget, we established a team here at the city that as we are moving forward with road repairs, uh, making sure that they include uh, multimodal options, pedestrian and bicycle enhancements. Uh, Our new STAT team, uh, which is interested in trying to take our existing adopted uh, bicycle master plan and executing those projects faster than they have been historically. Uh, working with SANDAC to cut down the time it takes to actually deploy some of their projects. And you've seen progress on Pershing Avenue uh, through Balboa Park, where you know we've made the decision to move forward and there are people actually working out on that street today. More must be done. We're not where we need to be, particularly not just for safety of individuals, which is the most important thing, but also when it comes to meeting the obligations under our climate action plan. I do want to note, Andrew, we do see a, a fair amount of negative behavior uh, from motorists people driving at excessive speed, distracted driving, things of that nature, Um, we can build some of the greatest infrastructure possible. And that may reduce the probability of a terrible and tragic outcome. But motorist behavior is a big part of this. 
The L.A. City Council voted last month to lower speed limits on more than 100 miles of streets in the city. And this was made possible by a state law that now gives cities more discretion over setting speed limits. Is that an idea you would support for San Diego? I would. I mean, I think that that's obviously a way that you can reduce the likelihood of an injury or a fatality. You know, we've had a successful slow streets pilot in our city uh, during the pandemic. This is stuff that we're currently evaluating to make permanent. And we continue to look at other opportunities to pedestrianize key corridors, things like Fifth Avenue through the Gaslamp Quarter. I mean, I think these are things that just a few years ago, Andrew, were extremely controversial, had a significant amount of pushback that today, you know, are well embraced by the community. And now we're simply looking for the funding to do this. Last week, you were up in Northern California with Governor Gavin Newsom to support his proposed creation of care courts. This would be a new division of civil courts that could force people with severe mental illness into treatment, and the county governments would then be required to pay for that treatment. Why are you supporting this program? Because like most San Diegans, I'm extremely frustrated by the humanitarian crisis we see playing out on our streets every day. And it's not just here in San Diego. Uh, What we have is a situation where our behavioral health system is broken. Uh, And we have to acknowledge that and we have to start finding fixes for it. I believe that Care Court is a way that we can address the needs of the individuals that your listeners and viewers see every single day. You see people who are active in uh, their addictions, uh, have significant mental illness, and yet we just leave them on the sidewalk. That is not compassionate. Uh, We have to do something. And I believe Care Court is a tangible, specific, and achievable way of being able to address the needs of those individuals by giving them the opportunity to work with a public defender and an advocate to figure out a individualized care and housing uh, strategy to get them off the streets for good over a 12 or 24 month period. Um, I think that that could help take a significant number of the people who are currently calling the sidewalk of their home, get them into housing and uh, more, better address the humanitarian crisis that is our homelessness crisis in our city, in our state, in our nation. I've been speaking with San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. Mr. Mayor, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, sir. We were just speaking with Mayor Gloria about Care Court. The full name of the program is the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Court, or simply Care Court. If approved by the legislature, it would require each county in California to add a Care Court program to their justice system. That way, families, first responders, and others could petition the court to evaluate an individual and potentially place that person in a court ordered program of treatment and housing for up to two years. Care Court would not only be for the homeless, but its main focus is on getting severely mentally ill and chronically addicted people off the streets and into shelter. But some mental health professionals have concerns about how Care Court would work in the real world. Joining me is Michelle Cabrera, Executive Director of the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. And Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Do you think it's a good idea that the state is finally investing real money in a program like this? I think that is actually part of the problem or the concern that we have with this proposal. This new court structure would pump resources into the courts, public defenders, supporters to provide support to individuals in the court hearing process new funding for judges and all the clerks and and staff who are needed to make this court run. 
but it would not add any new money to the actual service delivery side of the equation. And that's where we believe that this proposal is fundamentally flawed. You know, when we are talking about trying to go upstream and sort of connect people with treatment services, we need to understand that we are living in the midst of a global pandemic that has had significant impacts on the behavioral health workforce as both demand has gone up And frankly, our workforce has really been stretched thin over the course of the pandemic. That is on top of decades of underinvestment in our behavioral health safety net, not only for people with Medi-Cal and other forms of public coverage, but certainly anyone with commercial coverage can tell you that commercial insurers have been woefully inadequate in providing for the needs, particularly of people with significant mental health and substance use disorder needs. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, A main argument in favor of the concept of mandated treatment is what Mayor Gloria has said, that for too long, we've left severely mentally ill and addicted people on their own to languish unsheltered in the streets. Is is that what you've seen as well? Well, you know, as much as I love Mayor Gloria, on a personal level, I have to say that I vehemently disagree with his problem analysis. The problem of homelessness is caused by a lack of affordable housing for very low-income people. You see a number of groups who face challenges in terms of education and employment or who lack social networks and family supports overrepresented in the homeless population. This includes Black Californians, LGBTQ youth, survivors of domestic violence, veterans, and of course, people with behavioral health conditions. They are unfortunately the casualties in a very unaffordable housing market up and down the state of California. And as housing prices and rent prices has gone up, our clients have to compete with everyone else for those housing slots. That, in addition to Uh, HUD policies that actually deprioritize people with behavioral health conditions for available housing slots have really challenged our clients in accessing housing, even when it's made available through our local continuum of care or the local structure for providing uh, homeless individuals with housing. So if you're coming out of a treatment facility or out of incarceration, you actually go to the back of the line when it comes to trying to access housing resources. So there are structural issues that have led to our clients facing homelessness disproportionately. But I think it's also important to note that the longer someone spends unhoused, the more likely they are to either develop a new behavioral health condition or for their condition to worsen. And so we've got a massive problem on our hands that has only been compounded over time. Our clients to say that they are driving this problem or the safety net that serves them is actually misplaced blame. And frankly, it's unproductive. What we need to do is treat this like the crisis that it is and both prevent individuals from becoming homeless in the first place by connecting them with affordable housing options. And we need to provide a crisis intervention style approach to offering people services voluntarily and housing voluntarily. I can tell you that we have people who are actively involved in recovery services today and they are unhoused because we don't have enough housing slots for our clients. That is a problem. Have professionals like yourself been involved in developing this proposed care court program? Our county behavioral health 
safety net and directors were not involved in conceiving of this proposal. Um, however, the administration has indicated that they do intend to bring us to the table to really finalize it and to help give it shape and form. And so we are hopeful that in that process of engagement, the expertise of the service delivery system will be brought to bear and help to guide and shape what this ultimately becomes. Okay, so if the legislature does give the okay to the whole concept of care court, what, in your opinion, does care court need to provide in order to be successful? Well, as I've mentioned, the first thing we need to do is we need to put our most severely mentally ill and sick individuals at the front of the line for housing resources across the board. If care courts can help to prioritize people with serious mental illness and substance use disorder needs for housing resources where they are available, then ultimately that could potentially be helpful. The other thing that we need to do, and this is going to be a harder part of the conversation, is we need to right-size funding for the public behavioral health safety net system. And what that means is we need to add funding so that we can expand services to meet the need on the streets right now. Three out of 10 people experiencing homelessness have some form of serious mental illness. Two out of 10 have a substance use disorder. That's roughly half of the population that is living on the streets right now. But we can't ignore the other half lest their needs become worse or they develop a substance use disorder or other condition just because of the trauma of living on the streets. These are hard problems, but ultimately they come down to housing, housing, housing. I've been speaking with Michelle Cabrera, Executive Director of the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. Michelle, thank you very much. Thank you, Maureen. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen in for Jade Heineman. After nearly a year-long search, the San Diego Unified School District has named a permanent superintendent. Dr. Lamont Jackson was chosen out of two finalists for the job. Jackson was appointed interim superintendent right after Cindy Martin was named deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Education last year. Joining me is KPBS education reporter, M.G. Perez. And M.G., welcome. Good to be here. Remind us about Lamont Jackson's background and his long association with San Diego Unified. Uh, Lamont Jackson is a person who grew up 
in the San Diego Unified District. He started in kindergarten, went through 12th grade, and then uh, graduated from Claremont High School um, and on to San Diego State and then eventually to his doctorate at uh, University of San Diego. So this man is um, homegrown and happy to be in the position that he finds himself now. And how long has he been associated actually working for San Diego Unified? 30 years. And in those 30 years, that includes he was a teacher, he was a principal. Uh, Most recently, he was an area superintendent before he was named the interim. And so he has worked. He also worked in HR. He hired people. So that is 30 years worth of employment uh, with the district. And did the Board of Trustees explain why they chose Jackson over the other highly qualified candidates? Dr. Susan Enfield from the Seattle area was very qualified, and they did mention her at the press conference on Monday afternoon and her incredible credentials. Ultimately, what it came down to, I believe, and what uh, the board members said was he knows the district inside and out. He has been uh, in the district at every level. And for that reason, he was the best uh, qualified candidate for the job, they said. Now, when we spoke with Dr. Jackson on this program and for your report on the two finalists, Jackson spoke often about the necessity of getting to know students, knowing their names, knowing their needs and challenges. Is that a common theme of his? He is very well liked by the students of this district. And I say that because at the press uh, announcement on Monday, there were a lot of students there and he shared personal uh, stories with them and about them. And so, uh, yes, uh, that is a theme of his, mostly because he's been a student. He's been a student in the district, as well as the other side of it, which is being a teacher, educator, and so forth. So, yes, definitely a theme, and he is well-connected and well-liked by uh, a lot of students. Speaking of challenges, though, what kinds of issues will Lamont Jackson have to address as the new school superintendent? Well, I said to him, one of the first questions, and I asked it was, what do you say to those who do not support you, those who continue to protest against mandates and take the district uh, to court? And what he said to me is, MG, I don't think they don't support us. I think they have a different opinion, and we are here to hear that. And of course, we're talking about masks, and we're talking about vaccination mandates. And by the way, those will continue. The mask um, mandate will end after spring break, as has already been announced. But he made a point of saying at the press conference that he will honor those uh, students and teachers who want to continue wearing masks to make sure that they stay safe from COVID. And when will Dr. Jackson be officially installed as San Diego Unified Superintendent? Well, the contract he will sign and it will be ratified at the board meeting on March 22nd, but he's already in the job. He is continuing the leadership he started uh, last year as interim. So, But officially, the contract will be signed on the dotted line, as they say, March 22nd. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thank you. Thank you. Seaport Village is a San Diego landmark. Tourists and locals go for the restaurants, shops, and the beautiful bayside views. But a new $3.5 billion megaproject may soon be replacing the original Seaport Village and Central Embarcadero. Port commissioners are reviewing the proposal today, though a final vote is still a ways off. Joining me now with details on the project is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove. Jennifer, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
The development team One Highway One has been working on this project since 2016. So just how big is this project and tell us what are the main components? It's a huge project. I I think it's fair to say by anyone's standards, it's extra large. Initially, the team bid on what's considered the entire central Embarcadero. So it extends from just south of the Midway Museum, follows the coast, includes some of the land there across um, Harbor Drive and goes all the way down and includes Embarcadero Marina Park North and as you know on the water side as well. But in the project description that they submitted to the port um, at the end of 2021, they extended their boundary in the water by another 30 plus acres. So now we're talking about 105 acres. And to put that into perspective, that's you know, you have um, 2.7 million square feet of mixed use development on the land side, and then you have 355 boat slips in the water. And we're talking hotels, retail space. What what are some of the components? What are people going to see there? So the hotel aspect is one of the bigger aspects. We're talking seven different hotels in six buildings spread across the site. So the kind of primary hotel is going to be in the tower that people have probably seen in renderings. And the tower is this cylindrical pyramid that extends 34 stories, 500 feet up in the air. But the base of that tower is going to be hotel. Otherwise, you kind of have a hotel campus of sorts. So lots of hotels. And of course, lots of parks and open space as well. Why does the port feel this project is necessary now? What's wrong with the seaport village that we have today? You know, that's a very important question. I suspect that we'll hear that discussed a lot today because actually I don't know that the port feels that this project is as necessary as it did in 2016 when they made the selection, right? So we're talking about over five years ago, almost six years ago, that they picked one highway one to do this development. And they did so at a time when Seaport Village was extremely run down. There were a lot of um, vacancies and it wasn't the attraction um, that the port had wanted it to be. But in 2018, the port actually took over. So the port has always owned the land, but they took over operation of Seaport Village And they've been on a very, I would maybe characterize it as successful change. And they've, you know, um, spent a couple million bucks and they've, they've renovated it, you know, primarily with paint, but also with activities. And they've spent a lot of time and money into attracting new tenants. So they're investing in Seaport Village to make it this asset. And now we have something that's come along. um, I don't threaten the wrong word, but certainly would destroy that. So I don't know that we have an answer to that question. I just think the dynamics of that space has changed substantially since the port issued the RFP and where we are today, just because it's taken five and a half years to get to this point. Now, it's still pretty early since this project has been actually unveiled, but how are people reacting so far? Well, the emails I get, (laughs) people aren't loving it. But I think that's a very specific type of person who really likes what we have there today. Like a couple controversial points are the waterside development, right? So if you are on the Embarcadero looking out towards Coronado, you know, in front of Seaport Village today, there are no boats. So you have this unobstructed view of the water all the way out to Coronado. Uh, You know, some people are taking issue with the fact that this project would put, you know, I think in that particular area over 100 boat slips, right? So it becomes more of a marina feel and, and in their mind would destroy, you know, the view corridor there. 
Um, other people are just taking issue with the sheer size of the development. It's you know 2.7 million square feet of mixed use development in a place where there's 90,000 square feet, or at least for Seaport uh, Village alone, it's 90,000 square feet. And then you have the issue of parks and open space. So Roco Park today is a very, I guess, well-known, if you're a local, if you you know, know the area, open space park that's very passive. Uh, the developer would like to relocate Roco Park. And I believe it would be a smaller footprint. And I've seen some people email me about you know, having concerns about that. So there are a lot of concerns that are surfacing in my email. But I also know on the flip side... You know, some city council members, even though this is a port decision, have expressed support for the project and they've let some of the commissioners know that they're very excited about this project. They think it could be a great, you know, engine for generating economic growth here in San Diego. What's the timeline on this project? When could it be ready for a final vote and when would it actually get built? You know, that is also a good question that I wish I knew the exact answer to. If you ask the developer, the developer would like to push forward with a timeline that sees them break ground in 2025, but that is very ambitious. That means that they get approval from the port this year, and that's not necessarily a given, right? So today's meeting is, you know, they'll get some feedback from port commissioners. Staff still has to, you know, come back and present this in a way. And I think they still have to finalize negotiations as far as uh, lease terms. But the most aggressive timeline would see the developer break ground in 2025, complete the project over a five-year phasing timeline and finish in 2030. But I would say that that's aggressive and ambitious at best. All right. I've been speaking with Jennifer Van Grove, who covers growth and development for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Now on stage at the Old Globe is a new play, El Borracho, which explores the realities of a Mexican-American family dealing with an alcoholic family member. The play is named after the popular Loteria card game, specifically the card that depicts a stereotype of a drunkard. In 2020, an early draft of the play was included in the Old Globe's Powers New Voices Festival, a renowned workshop and reading series for new works from across the country. El Borracho is now back at the Globe for for a full production, and playwright Tony Manessis and director Edward Torres spoke with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Edward, Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Yes, thank you. Tony, let's start at the very beginning. What drove you to write this play? I was in school at Juilliard, and uh, my teacher, Marsha Norman, who's you know, just a renowned Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, she has this philosophy that at one point in a writer's career, you have to write the play that scares you. And that phrase alone immediately conjured this play for me. So it's a very personal story. It's a, a play about my father. Uh, and when he passed away, it's something that when it happened, as an artist, I sort of knew one day I would have to contend with it in that way. And it, it took a while for me to finally be ready for that. And I think this sort of homework assignment from Marsha was sort of the, the kick in the pants probably that I needed because uh, I was wrapping up my time in school and I hadn't written this play. I'd written five others and I had one more left to write. And I thought, you know, let me just finally do this thing that she believes is 
you know, something uh, that every writer has to go through. So I wrote it then and thankfully, you know, it went well. And you know, I was terrified of sharing the story and terrified of sharing this play and exposing my family and myself uh, so vulnerably. But, you know, now that we're already open and we've gotten to see the show in front of audiences, it's been really rewarding that what I thought was perhaps too specific, too rooted in my family story, actually a lot of people have been able to access and connect it to themselves and their families. So the alchemy, I think, worked out all well for the end. I love that. And as you sort of mentioned, this story revolves around a single family. And there are just three characters in the whole play, a divorced couple, Alma and Raul, who moves back into Alma's house when she begrudgingly agrees to take care of him. And there is their adult son. So Tony, can you tell us a little bit about the dynamic between the three of them? In the play, what felt important to me, the character, the son character is, you know, a little bit my proxy, my stand-in in the narrative. And I just didn't want to center that character too much, his point of view into being there and the relationship in the family. So what felt really important to me was to actually root it in the couple, in this estranged couple and this, uh, you know, divorced couple, uh, the parents of this young character. And that, that for me is the mileage of the show. So, you know, it removes, I think, my own accountability and my own subjectivity of what happened. And I feel like I haven't seen that dynamic. I think we've seen narratives of like coming home stories where it is the kid or the young child that comes home and you see the world through their eyes. So I thought, thought to flip that narrative and actually tell it through the ones who are home and what they experience in, in, in that story. So Eddie, I wanted to ask you a little bit about these characters too. I can imagine that when you're working with a script with just three characters, a lot depends on those roles. So what drew you to them, to this family? Well, I mean, you know, I think one of the really lovely things about this story, and yes, it's a personal story for Tony, and that is already, for me, fascinating. But I think also I was able to draw my own personal experiences from my own parents as well. So it made the story really universal. So the characters were very intriguing and kind of stood out to me because of the way Tony had laid those characters out. You know, Raul is not your mean drunkard by any stretch of the imagination. He's actually quite charming and quite wonderful when you see him. You know, the son is also someone who is very warm and genuine and someone who really cares about his parents. Alma is someone who is also very stern. She reminds me of my mother and my grandmother and all the matriarchs in my family who were very, very stern, but loving and caring, but very disciplined and very centered and focused. And so I was like, wow, this is not too far from my own family. And so the task was to find a set of actors that would embody that, not just within the physicality of the characters, but also within the narrative that Tony had set forth. So it was a lot of fun looking for these characters. And then actually when you find them, then it's a whole nother, you know, a whole nother surprise. So the actors were then also would bring their own experience in it because, you know, I think the idea of addiction and loss and a uh, family that that breaks apart, there is something very human about that. It's not just the idea that, okay, well, this is a Latinx family or Mexican family. This could be somebody, you know, who could be from Poland or somebody from, you know, an African-American family. It could be many different ideas of what families are in, in, in this entire world and universe, right? So to me, that was probably the most fascinating and endearing qualities and actually really, really powerful as well. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about that and Latinx stories and how they're underrepresented in American theaters. Eddie, it was about 30 years ago that you co-founded Teatro Vista in Chicago, and that company has been working to change that. Can you talk a little bit about how that work has evolved over the last 30 years? 
I mean, I think it's it's really fascinating because there's always been, you know, plays about Latin American families. Now the term is Latinx or Latine families with their experience in the United States. It's difference from Latin American theater versus, you know, abroad, whether if you're coming from Ecuador or Venezuela or Colombia, that's mostly Spanish speaking theater. This is more about the U.S. experience of Latinos here in this country. And so there really wasn't much of that, but there's been a culture of it for quite a long time, actually. Going back to the West Coast and Luis Valdez, going into the Oregon Theater in the 50s and 60s in New York. And I discovered a whole plethora of wonderful writers from different parts, you know, that had the American experience. So they were either Cuban or Puerto Rican or Colombian or Venezuelan. And so finding that work out and knowing that we weren't being represented in the theater in Chicago at that period of time in the 80s was kind of like a missing note for me. And so I decided to start Teatro Vista, which evolved out of another theater company in Chicago named Latino Chicago Theater Company, which I was also a member of. So that evolved and gave rise to Teatro Vista and then Teatro Vista gave rise to probably another three or four other Latin X theater companies doing the same type of work. And so now, you know, we weren't the only ones carrying the banner of Latin X theater. There are now many other theaters in Chicago that are doing that, including Spanish language theater. So it was a, quite of a wonderful 30 years experience to see that evolve and grow. And to then, of course, you know, focus on continuing new plays. My relationship with Teatro Vista still exists and continues. I'm also part of the ensemble as well. So hopefully I will get back there maybe within the next couple of years to continue the work and to continue to give Latinx artists an opportunity to write, to see their plays being produced and to act and to also work behind the scenes. This was fascinating for us because I think this is, I think, the first time I worked with an all Latin X lighting designer, set designer, composer. So it was a real big thing for me to see that happen, especially with this production. Eddie, Tony, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Julia. Thank you for having us over here and for giving us a really wonderful experience. And thanks to the Globe as well. Yeah, thank you, Julia. Really a pleasure to chat today. And Eddie, it's great to hear your voice. And of course, lots of love to the Old Globe. That was playwright Tony Manessis and director Edward Torres speaking with KPBS arts editor Julia Dixon-Evans. El Borracho runs at the Old Globe through March 20th. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen in for Jade Heineman. Karama is a non-profit organization made up of Arab and non-Arab members. This Friday, the organization kicks off its 11th annual San Diego Arab Film Festival with food and a Palestinian film at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando speaks with the group's president, Larry Christian, about the upcoming festival. Larry, Karama is celebrating its 11th year of presenting Arab films here in San Diego. So explain what Karama is and what it does here in San Diego. Karama is a small nonprofit. We focus on issues of the Arab and Islamic world with a special emphasis on Palestine and do a variety of things, including uh, speaker programs and developing materials for teachers who have to teach about the region and you know, things like that. 
it has always been a mix of uh, Arab and non-Arab people who have an interest in the issues of the region. In uh, 2012, we decided that we would take on developing an Arab film festival in San Diego. And I'm the president of Karama, and uh, I, I get to be that in part because I'm retired and I have more time than other people do. And so I, so I do that. We have actually uh, assembled a support committee now, almost all of whom are, are Arab, and uh, they are kind enough to let me keep doing this. So, Larry, you mentioned that you have Arab and non-Arab people on the board and involved with the film selection, and you yourself are not Arab. So how did you get involved in this group? I studied history at the University of California in Berkeley in the 60s, you know, and I, and I had an interest in the issues of how the colonized world was responding to the growing national liberation movement and independence of, of so many countries all in that period. I concluded then that the history of my lifetime was really going to be revolve around how that happened and the goals and success of the colonized people in achieving their the aspirations. So that's always been an interest of mine. And back in the, in the late 80s, there was a case in Los Angeles where a group of Palestinians and the Kenyan wife of one were raided and apprehended by the FBI, who under the Reagan administration wanted to deport them for being radicals. So a defense committee was uh, was formed around around them, and my wife was a member of the National Lawyers Guild, and its lawyers were defending them. And so I started to get involved in that. And then the uh, first Palestinian Intifada happened, and uh, and a group of Arabs started having uh, nightly vigils, and uh, at a at a certain point. One of them, who I had met through these, this other LA8 case, approached me and said they really needed to have, they needed to have some literature to be able to give to people because those were in the days when you dealt with paper. Right? <laughs> and they really wanted someone who was a native English speaker to develop those. And would I be that person? Sure, I said. That evolved into uh, the precursor of Karama, which was called the Middle East Cultural and Information Center. And what do you feel the goal or the mission is of the film festival? The, the film festival has always had a two-part goals. One was to be a kind of a cultural sign point, uh, uh, signpost and a means for a celebration of Arab culture by the local community, you know, who has you know, long been not recognized. Uh, so, so one of them was to was to create a focal point for celebration of culture. The other part of it was to uh, show the community at large the an honest and real portrayal of Arab culture, show that it's it's uh, it it's essential humanity, its creativity, and uh, and and recognize that and recognition that uh, Arab Arab culture has been uh, a, a dynamic major contributor to world culture as we know it. And that by doing that, then we, we provide a basis to overcome the, uh, the very narrow stereotypes or the very negative stereotypes that, uh, that dominate you know, public discourse about Arabs. And this, that, I mean, that, that's been true since, you know, from in, in film terms, 
since uh, Rudolf Valentino and the Sheik, right? And uh, but but especially since uh, since 9/11, Arab Americans have had a very tough uh, uh, spot in American culture, and so we we're we're trying to show that uh, that there is a uh, a rich uh, history and culture that it. Uh, that that people here are products of it. We wanted to provide a, a, a framework to highlight that in a in a in a modern sense. And medium, our film is a really good medium for showing humanity. So it's it's those it's those two things: the uh, celebration of Arab culture and a sign of pride for the local community, and uh, and to reach out to the broader community to show you know, what the Arab community really is. Larry, one of the things I really appreciate about a specialized festival like yours is that it invites us to look at the world from new perspectives. And two of the films I got to preview for this year's festival gave us a different point of view on historical events that we probably have heard about, but likely only seen through a white Western lens. So you have French colonialism in 1940s Algeria in Heliopolis and the 2011 Egyptian Revolution in Trapped. You know, for better or worse, the the history of the of the modern Arab world is tied up in exactly that topic, and even our opening night film, The Stranger, is a Palestinian film. It is actually set in occupied Golan Heights, which has been annexed by Israel. And so, so here we are in our opening night is the issue of how it is that there are occupations and annexations that happen in Europe that are widely condemned and those that happen in the Arab world that are accepted and recognized even by the U.S. And the way in which European and American culture have kind of otherized the uh, Arab world. In addition to films that look at history, you also have some films that look at very personal stories like Daughters of Abdul Rahim, which looks to four women. That's true, and there are other films that approach a very particular social issues that are that are you know personal in nature. You know, the uh, Farah about a uh, woman in Lebanon who has some uh, serious mental health challenges and is trying to get those recognized and accepted in a modern Lebanese family. So you're right; the films do range from the very personal and individual to the family, as uh, Daughters of Abdul Rahman to the kind of larger historical political issues in Heliopolis, the uh, Algerian film, which we're pairing with another film about Algeria that goes back the other way, their Algeria, which is a, about an older couple who from Algeria has lived in France for a long time. And they're kind of thinking back about the process of how, the, how they got there and how they relate to their, their culture in this new place. Right. Well, thank you very much for talking about this year's Arab Film Festival. Okay. Well, thank you for asking us. We're very happy to do it. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Larry Christian. The San Diego Arab Film Festival runs the next three weekends in March at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park.